Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy. This is Ideas on the Art of Puppeteer, Peter Schumann. He's perfectly happy to make mistakes, to do it completely wrong, to have everybody else hate it. That's what he sees at that moment. That's what he's going to do. And I don't, you know, I've never worked with anybody else like that who didn't care if it was working by somebody else's standard. That's what I call genius. Between 1970 and 1998, the Bread and Puppet Theater invited all comers to a northern Vermont field for their annual Domestic Resurrection Circus. How many people came is only a guess. The local sheriff once estimated the crowd at 30,000, and other estimates have ranged as high as 40 and even 60,000 people. What they came for was a day-long outdoor happening, culminating in a giant puppet pageant on the theme of death and resurrection. You can see photographs on our website at cbc.ca ideas. People watched from the banks of a natural amphitheater which opened onto a large meadow. What they saw was unforgettable. I had never seen a show that used the kinds of elements that the Bird and Puppet Show incorporated. I'd never seen that before. I'd never seen a show that used landscape. I'd never seen a show that used huge sculpture. I'd never seen a show where paintings were active, moving dancers or, you know, I just had never seen that before. The Bread and Puppet Circus expresses the genius of Peter Schumann, a German-born sculptor and painter who moved to the United States in 1960. He started his theater in New York three years later. The theater was political and dealt with the questions of the day, but the expressiveness of Schumann's puppets and the originality of his shows allowed him to rise far above the banality and the preachiness that besets so much political art. Today, Peter Schumann is widely recognized as one of the most influential artists of his generation. In this four-part Ideas series, David Cayley examines his accomplishment. Later in the hour, you'll hear more about the Resurrection Circus and about Bread and Puppet's aesthetic innovations. But we begin tonight's program in 1968, when a radical street theater from New York suddenly found itself playing Tony theaters in Paris and London. Puppet Uprising, Part 2, by David Cayley. These are the sounds of riot in Paris. Word has been passed down that the police have charged at the other end of the street against the first barricade. The corner of Balbo and Michigan Avenue in the heart of downtown Chicago. There is an odor of tear gas still left in the air here. 1968 was a wild year. Occupations and uprisings spread around the Western world, from near revolution in the streets of Paris in May 
to the pitched battle that raged around the Democratic Party's convention in Chicago in August. In this heady atmosphere, the Bread and Puppet Theater became, for a few years, the theater of the day. Their shows were an astonishment, seeming to be at once modern and medieval, politically engaged, yet brooded over by mysterious giant puppets that looked as old as time and gave the plays a grave, ceremonious quality. When they appeared at the World Theater Festival in Nancy in France, the newspaper Le Monde called their performance a revelation, and they were invited to play in fashionable theaters in Amsterdam and in London. Other European tours followed. Mark Estrin was a musician and puppeteer on those tours, and he remembers the disorientation of a company used to playing in the street or in their loft above a gypsy club in New York. One of the striking things for me about the tours was being treated like rock stars, which seemed so foreign to the material that we were bringing. We would play in, say, in Vincennes, in the theater there, and it would have 500 seats, and it would be uh, sold out every night for two weeks, and people would be banging on the doors, literally. I mean, the French students, you know, if they couldn't get in, they'd bang on the doors until they were let in because you couldn't have the show because they were banging on the doors. And that really seemed odd to me, this consumer... We weren't consumer objects, but we were the object of consumer demand. Among the plays that seemed foreign in this atmosphere of adulation was Fire, the show that had first led to the company's invitation to Europe. It was a prayerful, almost dreamlike piece, conceived in memory of three Americans who had immolated themselves in protest against the war in Vietnam. In Berlin, an excited late-night audience, unable to adjust to the play's meditative pace and harrowing subject, laughed uneasily at its solemnity. Other audiences were more respectful and attentive, but Peter Schumann and his company remained uneasy, Mark Estrin says, about whom the shows were for. There was a lot of political tension around that because Peter and the company has never wanted to be a theater for the rich. You know, on, on the other hand, it was those big theaters that were paying for the pup, you know, for 20 boxes of puppets to come over and 15 puppeteers and, and all of that stuff. And the people on the street weren't paying for it, but there was still this tension about needing to serve the people on the street. And so the days would be devoted to outdoor free shows. And then in the evening, we would go to the theater, or the late afternoon, we'd go to the theater and prepare the expensive show. It was a kind of nice balance, actually. The expensive shows were gorgeous. I remember one that was called That Simple Light May Rise from Complicated Darkness. Beautiful, beautiful show. Um, we did a show, The Birdcatcher in Hell, with huge demon puppets and Yama, the king of hell. Well, that's not stuff you can take on the street. And yet they were amazing artistic events, And but the public responded to them. And But then we would take these little shows and perform them ten times during the course of a day in marketplaces. Bread and Puppet enjoyed many artistic successes during these years, 
But it was often the company's radical political side that was most galvanizing and most likely to attract converts amongst those who saw them. Massimo Schuster was then a student at the school of the Piccolo Theater in Milan, and he remembers his reaction when Bread and Puppet played there in 1969. When Bread and Puppet came, it was just, uh, whoa, what is this? It was like a UFO. Everybody was doing everything, and the actors were not star, and there was not all this... Uh, paranoia going between one and the other, between the star and not star, etc. And uh, plus it was the communitarian kind of living and the girls looked nice. And uh, I mean, it was the whole thing, you know, <laughs> basically. <laughs> we were just fascinated. It was the hippie generation. And uh, I was not interested in puppetry. I had never seen a puppet show before in my life and I really didn't give a damn about that. It was more... Uh, Political involvement was the Vietnam War, was the pacifism of the company and all that. That's the kind of reasons that made me want to work with them. Massimo Schuster did join Bread and Puppet and worked with the company for several years during the 1970s, both in Europe and in North America. Today, he has his own puppet theater based in Marseille. The Bread and Puppet Theater's vogue in Europe lasted well into the 70s, but being anointed as an important artist didn't seem to have much effect on Peter Schumann's sense of himself or his vocation. Mark Estrin recalls him as indifferent to his reputation and quite unwilling to interpret himself for others. After shows, uh, people would want Peter to give interviews or to go to a, a seminar, a public seminar that's being held at the University of uh, Nanterre or something where people would come and question him about the meaning of the work and the political, you know, you can, you can imagine this European political uh, uh, radical um, kind of analysis from all of these people that have been schooled in, in uh, this kind of dialectics. And uh, Peter just hated that stuff. He didn't want to answer questions. He didn't, you know, the answer, is the, the answer is the work. You have a question, we'll do it again, come tomorrow. Peter Schumann's reluctance to be drawn into the discourse of theater critics and academic word spinners had several sources. One was his vision of puppetry as something humble and openly foolish. Art out of a garbage can, free of pretension, the work of artisans rather than of capital A artists. Another was his unwillingness to ingratiate himself with audiences. Even where admission had to be charged, he refused to think of himself as someone bound to deliver $10 worth or $30 worth of theatrical entertainment. To him, the audience was being invited on a journey rather than offered a package destination. And what they got on a given night depended on what stage of the journey that particular show was at. Puppeteer Michael Romanishan was a member of the company for many years, and he remembers arriving at a theatre festival in Ireland with an unfinished work. Our first performance there, Peter had to stop the show and change things in the, you know, in the middle of the performance, and it was like the gala opening of this festival. People were all dressed up in their you know, theatre-going clothes and were sitting there waiting to see the premiere performance of the festival. And he was running it like an open rehearsal. He would stop, stop the show and say, you know, do it like this or not like that. Which was, you know, was, it was awkward for the audience and for us, but 
And when I look back on it, I think it was very, it was kind of courageous and great that he did it that way. The show that didn't quite premiere at the Irish Festival, it was called The Life and Death of the Fireman, was an extreme, if revealing, case. Most bread-and-puppet performances were more or less ready to go by showtime. But few of the longer ones ever achieved a permanent, canonical form. Rough edges were definitely part of the company's style. If you get the big red color of the thing you want, Schumann once wrote, you need not care so much for the finesse. Too much finesse, too smooth a finish, the fall into mere elegance could, in his view, be a drawback. Michael Romanishan agrees. It's an honest kind of theater. When something breaks, you don't pretend that it hasn't. I remember seeing the Monteos, the Sicilian puppet theater that was from Brooklyn, and they did a show. And in the middle of the show, like half the state, you know, it was a battle scene. And Orlando's fighting some, you know, Saracen. And the sword hits the curtain and the stage fell down. Half the, half the curtain fell down. And then you see these guys in their rolled up T-shirts smoking cigarettes with their tattooed arms, you know, right behind there. And they just, you know, they bent over and they picked it up and and they fixed it and then they continued the battle. And that was fine. And that, you know, that was my ideal. That's like, yeah, that's how, that's fine when that happens. It's even sometimes better. It can be better, in Michael Romanishan's view, because it potentially shatters the passive trance state into which spectators can so easily fall and brings the audience into a more collaborative relationship with the performers. The performer can strive for truthfulness, not just a seamless illusion. And it is just this striving that gives Peter Schumann's theater its distinctiveness and its importance. For him, something much more crucial than mere polish or plausibility is always at stake in a performance, something that Michael Romanishan says was, at first, hard to understand. This was something that troubled me in the beginning that I only later figured out. Like, Peter would come up. Sometimes you felt like you did a show terrible. You did everything wrong, and he would say it was great. And then you felt like you did, it was a really great show, and he would say it wasn't any good. And it was something about getting at the real essence of what the show was supposed to be and performing it in a way that took it to the, as far as it could go at that moment. And... Maybe it was also the, the room and the night and the people in the audience and all of those things together. And in those moments, it really didn't matter if the curtain fell down or if you tripped over something. or You could still do a perfect performance. And that's the contrast between how ragged and rough and unfinished and underperformed a lot of the bread and puppet shows are and how people see them and say, well, you know, it's just a bunch of ragamuffins and they... They don't have any training. And, you know, and that is an aspect of Bread and Puppet and one that I like a lot. But then there's that also aspect of just total, complete perfection. And that, I don't know, that, that having that contrast as a puppeteer of something so disciplined and exacting and, and having to be perfect in order for it to be done right and doing things that were, it totally didn't matter how you did them. There was a bigger thing involved. Michael Romanishan got to participate in one of these moments of perfection early on in his bread and puppet career. It occurred during a show called The White Horse Butcher, 
which concerned the death and resurrection of a horse. That horse got beaten down and butchered by a little character, what we called the butcher, which was a white head with a black hat, a mask. So the horse was killed and then it was lying dead on the stage and a, a stilted angel that Peter played would come out and it was a beautiful, beautiful figure with long white dress, different layers of dress and a, and a mask, a face mask with very long hair made out of rope and wings. And that figure did a dance all around the stage and ended up standing over the horse and then there'd be a cymbal clash and the horse would jump up and then it was as, as if the angel was riding the horse because being on stilts was just high enough to be above the back of the horse and riding on it. And then a tune would play and the, and the, and the angel would ride out on the horse. And my first job in Brennan Puppet, or one of my first was being the back end of the horse and then later I advanced to being the front of the horse. So I experienced that scene from inside not seeing it. But I was always, ex I mean, we must have done that show a hundred times or more. I was always very, very moved by that moment of the horse jumping up and being resurrected and then riding out. Moved to tears sometimes. And I think that was, for me, one of the most lasting, powerful images of of Bread and Puppet is always the idea of resurrection and being able to rise above our overwhelming difficulties. And that particular little scene was maybe represented that or showed that in the strongest way. The resurrection of the butchered horse is a characteristic moment in Peter Schumann's theater. It draws its power from the nakedness and transparency of the illusion. It's plainly only a puppet angel riding a puppet horse, but also from the deeply affecting character of the puppets themselves. Schumann's style as a painter and sculptor is sometimes described as expressionist for its rough, vigorous, suggestive quality. He says it's a northern style, which can be traced all the way back to painters of the German Renaissance, like Matthias Grunewald or Meister Bertram. He works quickly, he told me, and relies more on his hands than his intellect. Not much thinking involved, I would say. You know, when you have a whole big thing in mind, a mass of things, and you make them very fast, then they come out better, because you are guided more correctly. You let things go more fluently. And when you fuss and when you dig in and when you get laborious with a face, it resists. It doesn't want, want to be solved. You never find a solution. To be free enough to do it without interfering too much, especially intellectually, I guess is a gift. You want to do your service properly. You don't want to mess it up with conversation or intellectuality that would interfere. So you want to leave it alone. 
let it act itself out. I guess that's what the hands want, you know, and what your eye, in collaboration with the hands, want. The eyes and the hands, Peter Schumann says, can create things that second thought would only distort and denature. So he lets things appear and only afterwards tries to find out what they are. That's how the shows are created. The puppets come first, and then their characters and stories are worked out. Michael Romanishan. All of a sudden, there's this whole world that has its own rules and its own logic that, you know, even Peter doesn't control. He just discovers. And I think a, a big, big difference between Peter's idea of puppetry and his sculpture and art and say somebody like Julie Tame or other people, is Peter doesn't really see himself as knowing and designing what is going to happen after he makes... I mean, he, he doesn't know how a show is going to turn out or what even what a particular mask is always... how it's going to be used or what it's going to be exactly. You know, he makes something and then discovers what the life is and it has its own life to it. So... Uh, I think he always, you know, feels that those things are imbued with their own kind of spirit. Putting on a show that begins as something to be discovered and is never completely finished can be a chaotic and frustrating process for the performers. Actor George Bartaniev remembers such frustrations, but says that for him they were usually eclipsed by the brilliance of the results. He first worked with Peter Schumann in 1981, on a production of a 19th-century German play called Wojtzeck. Schumann drastically cut the text and recast the play for puppets, with only the part of Wojtzeck played by an actor. Bartaniev played this central role and was taken by the way in which Schumann was able to condense the play into striking visual images. For instance, there's the incredible moment after Wojtek's wife is first unfaithful to him with this officer. He had a scene where nobody was on the stage and the whole stage shook. Everything, the furniture, the lamp hanging from the ceiling, a single bulb, and everything started to tremble. And it was such an extraordinary image to happen after she had met clandestinely with this officer, that the whole house that they lived in shook. I thought it was just the, one of the most brilliant things I had ever, ever seen. And indeed, you know, it just used to send goosebumps up my spine every time, every night. And it was a really amazing thing to work with him now. You know, Peter is not a, an actor's director. And he freely and often admits it. Uh, he's an artist, and very often he's not certain as to what is the outcome of what he's working on. He has no idea very often. He works from an image, and one image leads to another image, and he tries to, to tie the images together. Sometimes it doesn't always work, and many people were very often confused as to what the hell was going on, you know. I mean, the people who, who were in the plays, you know, the people who were working the puppets, saying, what am I doing? What does this mean when I suddenly throw down this pot, you know, and make this noise? What's, what's the meaning? And no one, and Peter wouldn't explain. <laughs> he didn't know. And he didn't want to explain because with Peter, he very often 
was adding and subtracting, you know, in the early days of performance and rehearsal. And, and we very rarely had what's called a dress rehearsal. I mean, forget about it. You got to opening and you hoped that you would remember which scene came after which. It was always terrifying and exhilarating at the same time. After Wojtzeck, George Bartaniev went on to do a second show with Peter Schumann called Diagonal Man, this one a Schumann original. It was a play whose central symbol, the diagonal man, unable to say a clear yes or a clear no, could be read in many ways. When the show was taken on tour, it received a pretty flat response in France and in Germany. Then, says Bartaniev, came Poland, where the communist regime was about to be replaced by the popular solidarity movement. We played in this little tiny opera house, and they started every single line in the play they thought was written for them. They thought the whole play was a political metaphor for the ascendancy of solidarity and the disappearance of communism, and that the diagonal man was the one in between who wasn't sure which side he was on, you know, and... And they started, every time I said a line in the play, I suddenly realized, oh my God, this has another possible meaning. And indeed it did, because they would start to pound on the, every time a certain line was said, they would start pounding with their fists on the balconies. And then when we went through, um, I had to learn, I learned, actually learned the text in Polish before I left, I, had, I got an, an actor here in New York and he taught me the whole text in Polish and I listened to it for two weeks, um, you know, glued to my head. And I learned it and um, afterwards somebody came up to me in the street and said, you know, it was very good, but you spoke a little bit like with Russian accent. <laughs> I said, Oh, my God, that's the worst criticism. And that's the worst criticism, of course, I could have had because, you know, there was no greater insult than to speak Polish with a Russian accent, which, which they'd had enough of, you know. Despite George Bartaniev's Russian accent, Diagonal Man's wild success continued at other Polish theaters. Just as many of Peter Schumann's shows at first grope uncertainly for their proper form, this was a show that had to wait for its proper audience an audience that could enter its spirit. Bread and Puppet has always had a distinctive relationship to audiences. It's a gracious relationship. Wherever he goes, Schumann bakes the hearty sourdough bread for which the theater is named and offers it to his audiences. But it's also, in some ways, a reticent relationship. The audience is received hospitably, but never humored or indulged the performance obeys its own necessities as Schumann conceives them. This unwillingness to merely entertain, however, sometimes produces results more powerful and more truthful than a calculated striving for effect ever could. Omar Shapley is an actor, director, and teacher of theater who has closely followed Peter Schumann's work. He compares a passion play of Schumann's with a play, later a film, that wowed New York in the 60s, Peter Brooks' production of Peter Weiss's Marat Saad, and in particular, a scene in that play in which a female character flogs the Marquis de Saad. 
the vice play simply called for him to have himself flogged by her. Brooke had her flog him with her hair, her long hair. Remember, the hair would be dragged slowly. She would drag across his naked back, and he would feel a sudden blow of pain as he spoke each time she did that. And, but it was a caressing, a sensual move that was happening. It was really very stunning. Now, Peter, off at the other end of town, had a very different aesthetic, the flogging of Jesus. In the first place, at that moment in it, the, the Jesus that he chose was Margot Lee Sherman. And her hands were tied together, and um, a rope from the flies came down so that they, it appeared that she was being held from above with her hands tied together. Then, as I recall, two of those horrible soldier figures of Peter's, really ghastly figures with, with helmet masks that obscured their whole faces, came up, and one of them took a chair. I think it was just a folding chair that the audience was sitting on and brought it and put it beside her. And another took a terribly ugly leather thong of some sort, a big, long one, with, I think with spikes in it, an awful thing. And he stood beside Margot, and he proceeded to flog the chair. Margot did not mime receiving any blows. She just was there in all her utter vulnerability, being supported only by the rope from above her head. While we watched this creature basically destroy the chair with brutal, violent attack on it, flogging it, repeatedly, over and over again. And that was that. The effect on me, the effect on me when I saw the, uh, the Peter Brook version was, my God, what an incredibly brilliant directing touch. When I saw Peter do it, it was, I didn't have words at all. I had seen an act of terrible violence contrasted with the vulnerability of a single human form. It was devastating. It was a shocking and violent image uh, because we saw the real violence of the attack. We saw it, and we saw the vulnerable human body. They were there together with it. Nothing, quote, clever about that at all. But it was extraordinary, and that was that particular... Uh, image was something that I've taken with me uh, many, many times uh, while put it, doing productions of my own or trying to see how that sort of aesthetic can apply to many other things. That is, something real has got to be here, but it shouldn't be applied in its real function. We're looking at the real thing, and we're looking at the thing against which it is pitched, they come together in the mind of the observer, the mind and emotional equipment of the observer. They are not invented for us. We invent the event. The event. And that was extraordinary. You don't illustrate what you're saying. If you're talking about someone that got shot by a death squad, you're not showing the agony. You're not playing or acting out the agony of someone being tortured or 
or shot. That's that was almost sacrilegious for him, I think, in a lot of ways. And that's why he hated a lot of political theater that did that. I don't know. It also comes, I think, from a certain kind of respect for what happened, that you don't, you can't ever imitate what happened. You can only present it in another way for people to get something out of it. Michael Romanishin. He often performed in the passion play that has lingered so long in Omar Shapley's memory. And he too remembers the beaten chair. There was two things that happened with that chair. The first was the beating of the chair. And then a beautiful puppet that we called the crowd puppet, which was a little crowd with a long piece of cloth. And the operator would be inside the cloth and the crowd, this crowd would be like a head, only it was a group of people. And that crowd would come in with a little handkerchief and it would go to the chair and then wipe the chair, like wiping the sweat or the tears away from the chair and treating it like a person that had just been, you know, with such delicacy and care. And I, I had that job of going and wiping the, the sweat off the chair. And it took me a while to figure out what that was. How do, how do you treat a chair with you know, with care and love. And those are the things that in Bread and Puppet, you know, you just pick up over the years that you learn by doing them. Displacing the violence and pathos of Christ's passion onto a chair, in Michael Romanishan's view, offers the audience a certain freedom in relation to what is being portrayed. Understanding and imaginative participation is invited, he says, but not imposed you're not telling them how they are supposed to react. Like an actor who's playing the part of someone being tortured and does the screaming and all that, the audience doesn't have any choice. But when you remove that kind of emotion from it, then I think the audience is freer to react how they will, how they want to. And so part of that idea that puppet theater has and Peter has is, that, is to allow the audience the freedom that they would have when they look at any kind of picture and develop their own ideas and emotions of what that picture means to them. On Ideas Tonight, you're listening to Puppet Uprising, a four-hour portrait by David Cayley of Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater. Photographs are available on our website, cbc.ca slash ideas. The Bread and Puppet Theater, Michael Romanishan says, tried to allow its audiences the kind of freedom it would have in contemplating a picture. This freedom was an important principle with Peter Schumann. And during the years when Bread and Puppet was performing a lot in theaters, his attachment to it sometimes made him restive with the whole theatrical setup, the captive audience, the confined space, and the consequent expectation of continuous entertainment. He got a chance to break out of this box in 1970, when the company was invited to become the theater-in-residence at a small experimental college in Vermont. Schumann and his family, he and his wife Elke by then had five children, had been living on the Lower East Side of Manhattan through most of the 60s, and conditions there, bad to begin with, had grown steadily worse with the growth of the drug culture. Break-ins were frequent. Elka had been held up at knife point, 
and the neighborhood wasn't safe for the children. So when the offer from Goddard College came, they accepted. They lived near the college on a farm with a large open meadow. There, in the summer of 1970, Schumann and his company presented our domestic resurrection circus. It was a puppet circus, with sideshows, stilt dancers, parades, and a festive atmosphere. For Peter Schumann, it was a liberation. It wasn't like a theater performance anymore, these circuses. It was like an outing in the meadow where you had potato pancakes or bread and you had theater and you saw parades in the distance and you saw animals coming out of forests and you saw a boat sailing to a little river on the side, the Winooski River, and you saw things out of the corner of your eye and not just straight on. So it abandoned what you called theater and became more of a festival. The circus grew over the years into an event that continued throughout the afternoon and into the evening, culminating in a pageant. As this form matured, the actual circus became only one part of a much larger performance, but the name stuck. After 1975, when the Schumanns moved to the farm in northeastern Vermont, where they still live, it was held on a field below the farmstead with a large natural amphitheater at one end. The scale and beauty of the landscape allowed Schumann to conceive movements in which the light, the land, the surrounding forest, and the green mountains in the distance all played a part. The big pageant would be always set at the time of the breaking of the light so that you could have in the end a fire where the fire itself would be the light. Now, if you were lucky, you could include the sunset if it wasn't hidden by the clouds or the moonrise if that wasn't hidden by the cloud. But the dusking and the coming of the dark and how giant puppets are in this disappearing light especially animal puppets. That was always a great fascination, to be able to do that. Ah! Oh, another lovely day at Bread and Puppet. I can't wait for the knock, knock, knock. Who's there? Police! Police who? Police, open the door before I battering ram it down. <laughs> While the door is open, blam, crash! I battering rammed it down anyway. The circus began in the afternoon with what were called sideshows. This one, a hand puppet show by Paul Zaloom that I watched in the summer of 2001. These gave the members of the company a chance to create original work. The sideshows were followed by the circus proper a series of short acts performed in a staccato rhythm to the pulse of the Bread and Puppet Circus Band. And then came the pageant, with a different look and theme each year, but the same basic structure. It began with the erection of what was called the Godface Puppet, 
a beautiful face with flowers for hair, benign but impassive, neither recognizably male nor female, reaching more than 20 feet into the air. Around the face circled white-clad puppeteers singing a 19th-century American shape note hymn praising nature as God's revelation. The pageant continued with a series of entrances, often from considerable distances, of people and puppet animals, and one year, a whole shimmering blue city. They presented the world as it should be, the domestic world in which people belong and feel at home. Taylor Storr, a teacher and writer, was a regular at the circus. The natural, the traditional, the conventional, the communal, were all presented as beautiful. Everything was always beautiful. And partly because it was presented so slowly and gently to things coming down the hill, maybe a dozen deer being led or coming along with somebody and little tinkling bells and very slow, gradual. And the space is huge so that for anything to get to the arena would take a long time. So that would establish a mood of the spirit and a rhythm in the spirit that then was terribly disrupted by these little men who then caused it all to collapse. The little men were figures of evil who took various forms from year to year. They were officials of some generic sort or the sinister dwarfish figures with large white faces that were called butchers. They would undo everything good until all was in disarray. And finally, resurrection. Trudy Cohen, a member of the Bread and Puppet Company for many years, remembers the moment. There was a puppet that ended the pageants for a number of years that we called Mother Earth, which was just a very, very large face that was mounted on wheels with big arms in front that traveled in front of the face and a huge piece of cloth behind and maybe... 50 people needed to operate it. And it kind of floated over the field, the rises and, and dips. And the first time I saw that, I, I just couldn't believe it. It was so incredibly beautiful. And the idea that that image is going to come and scoop up all the dead bodies on the field that the bad guys came and killed was just completely uplifting to me. And I, I think it had to be that for the audiences too. Like, oh, God, this incredibly beautiful thing that takes 50 people to operate is going to make everything okay. And that hopefulness, I mean, to me, it just... I would travel a long way just to see that, that puppet float across the field and feel part of an event that could make that happen. Do you think that's different than what would go on in a religious celebration, let's say? Yeah, I guess it's a leap of faith. It's what, And for me, this is sort of my religion. I believe in that embrace. I believe that that's going to help me and help other people do well in the world and feel connected to other people and, and to a faith that things maybe could be all right. And it probably is a lot like a religious event, you know, if you're a believer. But if you believe that, aren't you a believer? Yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, going to church, I wouldn't have the same experience, probably as I do with that puppet. 
because I'm a believer in puppetry and not in Catholicism. Mother Earth's embrace, her gathering up of all who had fallen, set up the culminating moment of the pageant. With a torch that had been placed into one of her immense hands, she advanced towards whatever giant structure that year represented the quintessence of evil and set it spectacularly ablaze. Giant white birds swept down the hillsides towards the fire. The pageant ended, though many remained around the fire until late into the night. This was the typical structure, but what made it so compelling was the fantastic richness of the puppetry, new each year, with which it was filled out. For the company, and its many friends who came every summer to help out, the circus required fairly arduous preparation. There were rehearsals, the building of hundreds of new puppets, the printing of banners, and so on. But when the weekend of the circus finally came, the show was done twice on successive days, they sometimes experienced a strange synchronicity that they called circus energy. Paul Zaloom, now an independent puppeteer, performed in many circuses. A couple of the things that are really hard to forget are the time that it was overcast all weekend for the circus, totally overcast and cloudy, and a bunch of washerwomen raised little cardboard suns up, and as they lifted them up, the clouds opened up and the sun came out, and the audience started screaming, and I was off stage, like a quarter mile away, waiting for my entrance. We were like, well, the show was good in rehearsal, but wasn't that good. <laughs> so we didn't know what had happened. But occasionally that's happened. One year, uh, raised up a sign that said rain. And just as it came up, there was a two-minute downpour. Everyone scattered. And then it stopped. And everyone came back and continued the show. So he's got some connections in that, you know, with the, the, some special stage manager somewhere. Pulling the, you know, flicking the rain switch and pulling the uh, sun pulley. He of course, is Peter Schumann. And whether or not he has such connections, it's true that in 26 years, in the changeable climate of northern Vermont, the circus never had to be cancelled. Another wonder was the absence of any admission charge. At first, there wasn't even any obvious provision made for receiving donations. The company would subsidize the circus with money made on tour during the rest of the year. But that changed when members of the audience actually began to ask for convenient ways of giving money. Support also came, says Elka Schumann, from the sale of various bread and puppet wares. The banners were very popular, the printed cloth banners. So we began making that a part of, an important part of our work would be to print enough banners to sell at the circus, and we'd print all, all year long. Not, you know, not every day or anything, but that would be a goal to have hundreds of banners yeah. for the circus. And, and um, between those two, the selling of publications and art and the donations, we, the circus definitely sustained itself. The circus grew steadily in popularity during the 1980s and into the 1990s, eventually attracting audiences estimated at 30,000 or more. Vast campgrounds developed on neighboring farms. Uninvited vendors of all kinds began to crowd the shoulders of the highway leading to the Bread and Puppet Farm. A Vermont-based rock band called Fish took to scheduling their annual summer concert at the same time as the circus, 
so that their grateful dead-like following could conveniently attend both. Rumors began to reach the puppeteers of people who never came to the circus at all, but just partied all weekend in the campgrounds. Bread and Puppet coped as best they could, moving the vendors, for example, to a dedicated area away from the road. But in the end, this immense popularity was the circus's undoing. The end came in 1998, after a man was accidentally killed in a fight in one of the campgrounds. Elka Schumann. We were going to have a big meeting to discuss the next circus or what to do or what to do about every, you know, the size and whatever it is. And there had been rumors flying around that three people had been stabbed in a fight, that two people had died. I don't know. It was like, what's going on? And how come even the, the police didn't seem to know? And just before the meeting, we got the final word. Yes, indeed, a person had been killed. And Peter just said, okay, there's no, that's the end of the circus. And there wasn't, <laughs> we were all sort of sitting in the building waiting to have this long, heavy discussion. <laughs> and there was, we just went, got up and left. So that was it. It seemed to me it's just enough. This accidental thing is not just an accident. It's a finger from above telling us, stop. First this, then something else, was the thought. Now it's a single murder, but if it's a riot, whatever. What happened the next summer? It was amazing, because the event itself didn't have advertisement. So it was a word-of-mouth event. And then the cancellation of the event also couldn't be properly advertised, even though we tried in local papers. But people didn't come. It was understood. That's finished. So the and word we, went we around. immediately went down to just a couple of hundred people showing up. So it was fantastic. It really worked. It's amazing how that worked. And now we have the pleasure to present to you the absolute happiness system flag-waving ensemble. In the summers since 1998, Bread and Puppet have replaced the annual Resurrection Circus with smaller, more manageable circuses performed each weekend. The mammoth pageants of the 90s will not be done again. But they remain, in retrospect, one of the most remarkable cultural happenings of our time. Peter Schumann set out to revive the spirit of the popular festivals of the past. He wanted to create a form of celebration that escaped the constriction of conventional theater, a living form that glorified the beauty and homeliness of the world and allowed people a real sense of participation in its regeneration. And he succeeded all too well. But despite the hassles that came with success, he is amazed, looking back, that it could have happened at all. It could be fantastic. I mean, just the realization that you can... You can say these things, you can show these ideas that are not plausible in the modern understanding of plausibility to Americans or to modern man, as they call that. And yet they accepted it on its own credit for what it was, leaving it as basically mysterious to them 
living it at that. That was quite amazing, that experience, to see that. On Ideas, you've listened to part two of Puppet Uprising, Peter Schumann's Bread and Puppet Theater. The series continues next Monday night with a program on the politics of bread and puppets art. Photographs of the theater's work are available on our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. Tonight's program was written, presented, and produced by David Cayley, with the assistance of Susan Mahoney and Dave Field. Associate producer and webmaster, Liz Nage. You can order a printed transcript of this series for $22, or a set of CDs or audio cassettes for $32. Write to us at Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. Or call 416-205-7367 and order by credit card. Our email address is ideas at cbc.ca. Please allow four to six weeks for delivery. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up on CBC Radio 1, the hourly news, followed by the arts today and between the covers. Mm-hmm.